Good morning. I trust you all slipped and slid your way in here. Good, glad to know you made it here safely. Uh, you know, growing up, I was a pretty cautious kid. I, I just was not prone to jump in the middle of a whole lot of danger. <coughs> and I, I never broke any bones or get anything too terrible. And I came across a picture this past week that kind of emphasized just sort of how much caution I took uh, when, I, when I was a kid. Let's just take a minute and we'll, we'll look at this. This is about 1980. I think I'm like four or five years old, something like that. And, and notice, it's, I'm in two feet of water. I'm standing, right? And the water's, it's not even coming up to my waist. I'm wearing a water ring, even though I'm nowhere close to floating. And uh, I'm, I'm roped way off here in this tiny little shallow end they had. This is at Rock Lake Pool in Spring Hill, West Virginia. I actually remember going there a few times. Now, thankfully, I learned how to swim. And they kind of let me get out of that section and, and go out into the, the deeper parts of the pool and, and play around there. Because what would look really silly uh, is, is if I looked like this, you know? I... <laughs> I never really got out of the shallow end, and I stayed there and stayed in the two feet of water with my water ring on. Actually, I think they might have called some authorities if I had <laughs> stayed there after I had grown up. And the truth is, none of us really want to stay uh, in an immature state. Whether it's um, in music, we want to be progressing as we practice. Whether it's school, we want to be growing and learning as we go. And we also do not want to stay in an immature state when it comes to our spirituality. We want to be growing. We want to be learning more. We want to be uh, getting closer to the Lord. But the truth is, we can get stuck in a state of spiritual immaturity. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, uh, there's a warning that the writers is saying, saying those Hebrews, saying you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. He's telling them, I can't give you the meat you want because I'm still giving you milk. <clears throat> and by the way, you know, you can be very astute in theology and you can know the Bible very, very well and still get stuck in a state of spiritual immaturity if you're not applying it. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to get to this section of Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to talk about spiritual maturity. Now there's a quote here I want to share with you. This is from Tim Keller. And it's a tough one. And it really challenged me. Because Tim Keller, speaking about spiritual maturity, says this. He says, spiritually, people very often want spectacular things. They want great preaching. They want a great church. They want miracles. They want to see dramatic things happening in their lives. They don't like the routines. They don't like praying and reading their Bible every day. They just don't like learning the truth. Don't just like learning the truth. And he goes on and says, don't you see the spiritual babiness in you? You're unstable. You're undiscriminating. You're easily fooled. You tend to be exhibitionistic. You tend to like the spectacular. And you don't like the grind. 
He said, these are the marks of the average Christian. These are the characteristics of the average church congregation. All I'm urging you to do is to humble yourself and encouraging you to say, yes, this is true of me, but I'm going to outgrow. That was kind of hard for me to read as I even looked and saw myself in very, very much in this statement. So how do, we how do we become spiritually mature? What kind of steps do we take? How do we get there? We're going to go through Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30 today, and we're going to look at that. And if you would, please stand as we read Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30. Now, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be encouraged by hearing news about you. For there is no one here like him who will readily demonstrate his deep concern for you. Others are busy with their own concerns, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know his qualifications, that like a son working with his father, he served with me in advancing the gospel. So I hope to send him as soon as I know more about my situation, though I am confident in the Lord that I too will be coming to see you soon. But for now I have considered it necessary to send Epaphroditus to you, for he is my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to me in my need. Indeed, he greatly missed all of you and was distressed because you heard that he had been ill. In fact, he became so ill that he nearly died, but God showed mercy to him, and not to him only, but also to me, so that I would not have to grieve on top of grief. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you can rejoice and I can be free from anxiety. So welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, since it was because of the work of Christ that he almost died. He risked his life so that he could make up for your inability to serve me. You may be seated. So this morning, we're going to walk our way through these examples that were given by Paul, Paul himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus. And as we go through this, we're going to look for five marks of spiritual maturity. Five marks of spiritual maturity. So we've been going through the book of Philippians and we've seen quite a few things. And here at the outset I want to say that as we talk through these examples, there are, uh, there are many marks of spiritual maturity. I'm going to talk about the five that arise in this section. We can also talk about prayer. We can talk about reading the scriptures. However, we're going to look specifically at these examples of spiritual maturity. Now, throughout Philippians, uh, the first chapter and the second chapter, we see this incredible example of Christ, how he lived, how he emptied himself, how we are shining like lights. And now Paul's going to get real specific with a group of folks that he's had in his presence for a while now. And it's interesting when we get to this section because at first glance, it almost seems like, well, you're just sort of giving us some people's travel plans and, you know, what's going on here? But we're hearing about two of Paul's companions and his co-laborers, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who serve as examples of what Paul has been talking about up to this point. So we step into verse 19, and Paul says he hopes. I hope. Now let's just stop there for a second. Three words in. Let's just stop for just a moment. Because what is, first of all, what is a hope? A hope is an expectation 
plus desire. You have a desire for something, but it's not just a desire. It's also an expectation that that desire is going to come into fruition. So I would say hope is desire plus expectation. You expect the desire is going to happen. You want something, and you're expecting it. So for Paul, since everything he says or does is based on his relationship with Christ, um, he has this hope, but he says it's a hope in Christ Jesus. So there's an extra level of certainty for Paul that this is going to happen. But he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen, but then what's, what is it he's hoping for? Well, he says he wants to send Timothy. But why? Because he says he wants to be cheered by news of the Philippians. Now just tuck that in the back of your, your hat for right now. He wants them to be encouraged. Then he goes on in verse 20. He says, for there is no one here like him, speaking of Timothy, who will readily demonstrate his deep concern for you. So Timothy also loves these Philippians. He singled them out. There's something special about Timothy. Paul uh, has, has recognized Timothy and has written letters expressly to him. And Timothy is this example of what Paul has been talking about, about treating others as more important than yourself, about being concerned about the interests of other people and not just your own interests. And then in verse 21, he starts calling some people out. He says others. He's talking about this group outside the Philippian church, outside the recipients of this letter. Others are busy with their own concerns, not those of Jesus Christ. With Timothy, there's no one of equal soul. But now he's talking about these people he's been subjected to in Rome. People have been preaching Christ for their own gain, who aren't interested in others, but in themselves, their own interests. And then he goes on to verse 22. But you know his qualifications qualifications talking about Timothy that like a son working with his father he served me with me in advancing the gospel so I hope to send him as soon as I know more about my situation so he's confident that he'll get there too and I, I want to make a point about something uh, in, in regard to Paul and Timothy in this section and it's this idea of being cheered by the news of the Philippians. Now, don't just skirt past that, because there's something deep in our hearts that we need to understand with what's going on here. Think about where Paul is. He's sitting in a jail cell, talking to people who are free on the outside, and he wants to know how they're doing. Uh, he's saying, I'll be cheered by news of you that you're, you're doing well. Now, just put yourself in his shoes for just a minute. Would you feel the same way? And don't forget to check your heart on this. Yeah, I can remember back whenever I was in college. I remember I was, uh, I was studying electrical engineering at the time, and I was taking a class in computer science that I just absolutely loathed. I could not fill up a note card right now with what I learned in two semesters of computer science, I'm ashamed to say. And I can remember I was laboring away in this laboratory inside the engineering building. I was the only person in there, didn't really have a clue what I was doing, trying to figure out how to get this computer program to work. And it was like a warm, sunny day. It was like 70 degrees outside. And I look out the window, and what do I see? 
I see a group of my friends walking down the sidewalk. They're going to a cookout. They're like bumping a volleyball back and forth to each other, looking like they're about to have a great time. Well, I got to tell you, I wasn't cheered by what I saw outside the window. It was quite the opposite. You see, if I'm miserable sitting in a room on a 70-degree sunny day, I want everybody to be miserable sitting in a room on a sunny 70-degree day. Not so with Paul. Paul didn't have the same level of bitterness and jealousy that I had sitting in that computer lab as he was sitting in his cell. He was cheerful, would be cheerful to get good news about these Philippians. So this is our first mark of maturity. It rejoices with those who rejoice. Maturity rejoices with those who rejoice. So what happens to you when you're at work and you see a coworker get a job that you really wanted and they're really happy about it? What happens to you when you see a young man dating the girl that you're interested in or a young woman dating the man that you're interested in? What, what happens to you whenever you see someone achieve in an area that you've always wanted to achieve and get some recognition that maybe you'd always secretly hoped for? What happens when you see someone not struggling with the struggles that you have? Do you rejoice for that person? It's not an easy thing to do. And then it can be on more serious matters too. What happens when you see your neighbor's parent live through some disease that maybe your parent didn't survive? Or a friend's child recover from a sickness that your child didn't? What happens in those situations when you see someone not suffering from a disease when you are? It's not easy to do this. And even in Romans 12, 15, Paul's going to be very explicit about this. He's going to say, rejoice with those who rejoice. Other versions say even to be happy with those who are happy. He also say, weep with those who weep. One of the church fathers, Chrysostom, made a comment about that. He said that it is easier to weep with those that weep than to rejoice with those that rejoice, because nature itself prompts the former, but envy stands in the way of the latter. And then John Calvin made a similar comment. He said, not to regard with joy the happiness of a brother is envy, and not to grieve for his misfortunes is inhumanity. You know, there's also a dark flip side to this. And the, the Germans have a word for it called Schadenfreude. Has anybody ever heard a word called Schadenfreude? Okay, a couple of you. See, Schadenfreude is the idea of actually rejoicing when misfortune comes on someone else. Uh, you'll see tons of videos. There's even one called Fail Army on YouTube. I watch it all the time. I get a kick out of people wrecking on their bikes. Ski jumps that go horribly wrong. They've, they've made a business out of these things. I think it's called America's Funniest Home Videos. Yeah, it's not natural for us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But more so to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. Um, it's not natural 
we've probably all experienced schadenfreude at some time. It's when something bad happened to somebody that, frankly, you didn't like. There was part of you that might have enjoyed that. That's called, again, schadenfreude. So then, we have this first example of Paul sitting in a jail cell rejoicing with those who rejoice, or ready to rejoice with those who rejoice. That's the first mark of maturity. I want to move on to the next example. Now we get down to a guy named Epaphroditus. And uh, he was known to the Philippians because he actually carried a gift from the Philippians to Paul himself. And Paul was eager to receive this gift. He was, he was, he was happy that uh, Epaphroditus was there with him. But then he gives some news about his friend Epaphroditus that the Philippians knew. Then uh, picking up then in verse 25, he said, But for now I have considered it necessary to send Epaphroditus to you. For he is my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger, actually he uses the word even apostle there, and minister to me in my need. So he's got a really high view of this guy Epaphroditus, and he's saying all these good things about him. He's calling him his, um, his co-worker, or, you know, his brother, he's a fellow believer, he's a Christian alongside me. Now in all likelihood, the Philippians thought that Epaphroditus was going to be with Paul so long as he was in prison. You couldn't care for your own needs. While you, I, I, rather, the state didn't care for your needs while you were in prison. Either family or friends would have to step in and do that. So they probably thought they would send Epaphroditus there and, and he would stick around. And Paul says all these good things about him. He says he's a, he's a fellow believer and he's, he's a co-worker. He's laboring with Paul and furthering this message of the gospel. Then he calls him a soldier. Uh, this fellow soldier. And that's carrying this idea that he's like a fallen comrade and that he became very ill and then, and then the Philippians learned about it and he needs to come back home for rest. But he's been this good soldier in the meantime. He soldiered along beside me even though he got ill almost to the point of death. And he was this messenger designated by the congregation in Philippi to execute this task of taking a financial gift to Paul and probably staying with him. And he was um, a, a priest. He was a minister to me in my need. He was there meeting the needs of Paul, serving alongside him while he was with Paul. Again, someone from the outside had to care for inmates when they were in jail. Then we go to verse 26. And it says, He greatly missed all of you and was distressed because you'd heard that he'd been ill. And you see the selflessness that Epaphroditus is exhibiting here. He's concerned that this church had heard he was, was ill and that they were distressed. That probably happened when he was journeying to uh, Rome, where Paul was in all likelihood. He probably got sick along the way. He was carrying money with him. He probably wasn't traveling alone. Odds are somebody went back to tell the church in Philippi that Epaphroditus was sick and he, he needed their prayers. But um, he kept going. But in essence, he was risking his life by continuing on the journey, even though he was sick. That he could fulfill his mission to Paul and what he had to do. And this is the second mark of maturity. Maturity understands the importance of the mission. Understands the importance of the mission. The mission is actually the gospel itself. Carrying the gospel. Getting it where it needs to be. 
And they understood, Paul, they all understood that the gospel was worth dying for. And willing to give their life to make it there, to make it known in Rome. What do you see as your main mission in life? People can come up with all kinds of things that they want to dedicate their life to. Really, the, the options are almost endless. And I came across a story about a guy named, his name's Rafael Antonio Lozano. He actually goes by Winter. I don't know how we got that. He's a 33-year-old. He lives in Plano, Texas. He's a computer programmer. And I get how computer programming can make you batty. But anyway, he's on a quest. He wants to visit every single Starbucks on the planet. And he started this mission in 1997 when there were 1,304 stores worldwide. And now there's over 6,000 in 37 countries. And as of 2005, he'd visited 4,918. And um, he's got to visit others around the globe, though. And even, even in spite of this impressive pace, he's not delusional about how things are going. Um, he, he says, you know, I'll never be finished. He even went on to say that every time I reach a Starbucks, he says, I feel like I've accomplished something. But then he said, when actually I've accomplished nothing. So how do you spend your time? You know, in Matthew 28, 19, Christ gives this charge. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We have adopted that. and We put it uh, in these words, to know him and make him known. That's our mission here at First Baptist. To know him, to know God. How do you go about doing that? Well, it involves coming here, being part of corporate worship. It involves disciplines, reading the scriptures, praying. It involves being with other believers in Christian community. It involves uh, going to classes and learning more about God and, and Christ and what he's done for us. We make him known through gospel words and through gospel works. We make him known by how we conduct ourselves and our jobs. Christians don't work like non-Christians. There should be a difference there. We have a different set of motivations. We do gospel works. We love people in a certain way. We have, we have a love for those who are disadvantaged. We care for those who can't care for themselves. This is very Christian. And we also work through gospel words. We speak the gospel to people. We take advantage of opportunities we have to make Christ known by sharing the gospel. This is what we do. This is our mission. This is what God has given us, the work he's given us to do. So the second mark is to understand the importance of the mission. It is something worth dying for. Then Paul uh, speaks for himself again, starting in verse 27. He says, in fact, he became so ill that he nearly died of Epaphroditus, but God showed mercy to him, and not to him only, but also to me, so that I would not have grief on top of grief. Now we get a fuller picture of just how sick Epaphroditus was. He was right on the edge of dying. But Paul recognizes that God saved him. Now, at that time, there was no modern medicine. There were no real hospitals. 
Uh, and if somebody was that sick, odds are they were not going to make it. So Paul says God saved him. This was his mercy on Epaphroditus and mercy on me as well. So this next mark, the third mark, is maturity recognizes God's mercy. We aren't entitled to God's mercy. If we were entitled to it, it wouldn't be mercy. But God gives it freely as God chooses to give it. It doesn't mean we are going to receive mercy. Have you received mercies from God? I get together with 830 and pray with a few of the elders. You know, being born in the United States of America was a mercy. Being able to get into your car and get here this morning was a mercy. If you're here and you're feeling pretty good, that's a mercy. Do you recognize God's mercy on your life? Do you recognize that getting to live moment by moment is a mercy from God? And seeing that is a mercy from God. So we recognize God's mercy. That's a mark of maturity. And there's a fourth mark I want to mention. Maturity rejoices even in hard times. Um, we can have joy completely independent of circumstances. I want to remind you of the definition I've used before in joy. It's the deep abiding assurance that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all creation. That he's absolutely in charge. That events aren't happening outside of what he has already ordained, no matter what they may be. And we can have joy in that. So we can have this joy independent of our circumstances. In addition to this, joy does not mean the absence of sorrow, but the capacity to rejoice in the midst of it. Sixteen times Paul says he rejoices in the book of Philippians. While he's in jail, while his friend almost dies, he's saying, what? He's saying I'm rejoicing. Because my joy isn't rooted in the circumstances that are happening to me right now. Now, again, this is the mark of a mature believer. I hope I get there someday. It's hard to do. It's not natural. But this is maturity. And then we move to verse 28, where Paul makes an admission. And there he says, Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him, you can rejoice, and I can be free from anxiety. He's referencing sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. And again, we've got... Paul rejoicing. And then we work our way down to verses 29 and 30. So welcome him to the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. Since it was because of the work of Christ that he almost died, he risked his life so that he could make up for your inability to serve me. And, you know, when I first read that, uh, I think Paul's, it, it almost sounds a little obnoxious to me. Can I say that? It's like, well, Paul... If I'd have been one of the Philippians getting this letter, I thought, well, what did you think we were going to do? You know, we're going to kick him out the door when he comes back in? Yeah, of course, we're going to welcome him. <clears throat> we're going to honor him. But this was actually very normal in a, in a Greco-Roman type letter where you speak highly of someone, and then you request the recipients to receive this person with a lot of high honor. So they wouldn't have been put off like this like Chad was, you know, whenever he, whenever he read this. So Paul says to welcome him. Why is that? He also doesn't want them to think poorly of Epaphroditus. Welcome him, honor him. Here's why he's coming back. He was sick, he almost died. 
if the intentions of this church in Philippi were that Epaphroditus was going to stay with Paul the whole time, they could have thought poorly of him if he just showed up on the door. It's like, well, you're, what are you coming back here for? You're a little early. Paul's still in prison. So why are you here with us? But Paul's saying, honor him, welcome him. He doesn't want there to be any misunderstandings about why it was Epaphroditus came back to them. And they, they would receive him in large part because of this letter. But this leads us to this last mark of maturity. Spiritual maturity delays judgment. It delays judgment. Now, what does that mean? It means we seek to understand before we just jump to opinions and conclusions about something. I remember when I was working my previous church, um, I, I had a, an assistant, and I, she was about to talk to somebody on the phone, and I kind of forewarned her. I said, look, I'm just going to tell you. I said, this person you're about to talk to, I said, they're, they're pretty difficult. And she kind of reprimanded me for that. She was, she was respectful about it. She's like, well, why are you telling me that? I was like, well, I, I'm just kind of. She said, well, why are you trying to form my opinion of someone before I ever got the chance to meet them? Ouch! <laughs> like, okay. But you know what? She was right. I get it. You know, when we jump in and start describing someone before anybody's ever had the chance to meet them, you can, you can color them in a wrong way. Uh, and be careful when someone starts describing to you all that has happened and their side of the story. And they're saying they're giving you all the facts. And you start forming all these opinions before you even talk to somebody else that was involved in that situation. This is a sign of maturity. Delaying judgment. Don't form your opinions too quickly. You saw, uh, you saw the media make the mistake of this just recently in this ordeal that happened in Washington, D.C. with these students that came in. Uh, and it looked like they were, I don't exactly know what happened, but the media portrayed it and made these students look a lot worse than they actually were. And they had to come, they had to back paddle and come back later and said, well, maybe we spoke too quickly on that. That's what we want to stop doing. That's what we want to keep from happening. We want to delay judgment. That's a sign of maturity. So to put all these together, Five marks of spiritual maturity. Rejoices with those who rejoice. Understands the importance of the mission. That would be the gospel. It's worth dying for. Recognizes God's mercy. Maturity tells us that we aren't entitled to anything. It's God's mercy that makes us well. It rejoices in hard times. Joy not rooted in our circumstances. And finally, it delays judgment. Don't jump in and form opinions too soon about situations and people. I want to close with a story about one of the Beatles and his guitar. This is actually the guitar that George Harrison had. It was his favorite one. Uh, I think he bought it for $200, 70 pounds is what it was, uh, when he was just first getting started back in the early 60s. And then in early 2011, the company that made it, I believe it's pronounced Gauche, uh, made this guitar. And then they said, well, we want to make an exact replica of the one that George Harrison had. I want to, and when I say an exact replica, I mean an exact replica. They got his guitar. They CAT scanned it. They made sure that they got every little nick right. And they took that $200 guitar, and they sold it for $20,000. They only made, I think, 60 or 70 of these. And they sold all of them. Now, why was it? that they were able to sell for so much more. 
because it was a replica of one that had a lot of value and a lot of worth. You know, you and I find our highest value as we become replicas of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that we would be mature believers. God, I pray that we would take these five marks, and Lord, I pray that we would live them out. I pray that we would seek out people that have these qualities, bring them into our life, show us uh, where we need to improve, Lord, and give us the courage to make changes. And Lord, be with us now as we go into this act of communion that would be holy and pleasing to you, that we would remember you rightly, and that we would look forward to a future meal we have with you. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen.